The Mourner's Bench is brought to you by Theolab Media. For far too long, Christian churches in America have dictated every conversation about faith, spirituality, and humanity. Theolab believes that a new conversation is necessary, that a more candid conversation is essential. Even more, we know it's possible. If you desire a new conversation or a new place to wrestle with what it means to be courageous, what it means to be human, visit theolabmedia.com. What is up, good people? Welcome back to the Mourner's Bench. I'm Brandon Thomas. I'm KT. I'm Malcolm David. And today, we're continuing our intimate conversation series. So really, I'm just here for a handoff. Take it away, KT. Today, Malcolm and I dig into a conversation about building trusting relationships in a pandemic, navigating tension in a holy way, and finding or yearning for a sense of home. Let's get into it. That's good, KT. Oh, I'm gone. I'm gone. (laughs) One of the reasons that we thought about doing these one-on-one conversations is because of some tensions that arose between you and I during our On Leadership episode. And I think what that highlighted for me was the reality that trying to build trusting relationships in the middle of a pandemic is challenging at best and almost impossible at worst. In our day jobs, we met maybe one or two weeks before the shutdown happened and we were working successfully together. It wasn't until the inevitable tension that exists in human relationships as we got into the muck and mire of daily life that we talk about in here in this podcast that I realized we didn't have those relational foundations that help people navigate through those times. When some of those tensions emerged a few weeks ago, one of the things that I realized again, one of the things that I, I, I learned again, there's this huge difference between spending time around someone and really learning who that person is. I think we have had opportunities to spend a lot of time around one another. And as you said, we've learned to work together and, and learned each other's sense of humor and viewpoint. I think we've learned about one another quite a bit. Does not mean that there isn't a lot of kind of unknowing there. There's something about the day-to-day life of stumbling around one another that happens when you're in an office day-to-day. That doesn't happen when you're spending maybe an hour here or there or on a, on a Zoom call. I grew up as an army brat, so I moved around every two to three years. You have two to three year friendships and then they're over with and and you end up not actually ever getting to the point where you have tension. And if you do have tension, you just walk away and find another friend for a, a year or two and then and then you move and people don't exist after you move away. And and so my dad was like that too. He was an army brat and I, I think my dad's dad was an army brat. So we have these generational ways of not necessarily knowing how to develop those deep relationships over time. So As an adult, it's been interesting to try to learn how to do that. 
After I left here, I lived in North Carolina for 14 years and had plenty of opportunities to engage in tension with people <laughs> in order to like deepen those relationships. But to come back here where I had lived before was so different because I had never returned. I had never known people again. So when I came back four years ago, it was this realization that I had so much more work to do because I had never had that encounter. So I think my trust issues arise from just not having having the experience of going through that journey. I'm wondering what comes up for you. I lived in the same house my entire childhood. My parents moved into the house that I was raised in when I was like six or eight months old. And I lived in that house for my entire first 18 years of life before I, I moved away for college. It was the only home that I had known. So we were really kind of rooted they are rooted in that community. But my, so my parents got divorced when I was six. My, my dad had an affair and, and left our family uh, when I was five and the divorce was finalized when I was six. My dad was very much a, a part of my life growing up and he lived in the same town and I saw him twice a week, every Thursday night for dinner, all day on Sunday after church. Um, so he was very much a, a part of my life, but I think that that experience, him sort of leaving our family, or at least that was my perception of what happened at the time, just really colored my my willingness to trust other people, um, number one. And then I think number two, my really like desire to want to have other people in my life. And I, I know that's a really kind of harsh and frankly like dramatic thing to, to say. I also naturally am an introvert. And I do think there's this part of me that deep down feels like if I can be happy and content by myself or with a very small number of people around me, then that protects me from the possibility of hurt. Um, you know, and I think I, I sort of look back on periods of my childhood and realize, yeah, a big part of the way I interact with other folks is fundamentally oriented oriented around this desire to, to insulate myself, you know, to not be hurt. It's easy to not be hurt if you don't let anybody in. Yeah. That is a, a worldview that I know is really problematic and, and really awful. And I feel like I have learned in different periods of my life to try to resist that that tendency, but the muscle memory is still there. If left to my own devices, I think that is kind of where I would return to over and over again. My parents got divorced, but they didn't divorce until I was in my mid-20s, which is a very different experience than kids whose parents divorce when they're young. But for me, the question was, if these people were married for 25 years, how do you then know? How do you ever know what to trust or what relationship to trust if it just disappears? I like the language of muscle memory because I think when we're stressed or when we are tired or when things like a pandemic are all kinds of shaky, then you go back to how you protected yourself growing up. That worked for me until it didn't work for me. Then life crumbled and then it was like, oh my God, I ha actually have to have people or I can't survive. I do feel like I, I oftentimes just am not open to relationships. It, I get anxious. I, my, my knee-jerk reaction is always to sort of walk away or to create some sort of barrier. And yet, I also have been lucky enough. I'm not sure if the word luck is what I want to use there or really the word that comes to mind for me is, is grace. I have experienced the grace of a few really intimate and, and meaningful relationships that I I genuinely feel like sustain me and ground me and whatever part of me is not shitty, you know, is, is tied to those relationships. And so it's funny, I I, I have been lucky enough to experience the, the joy of 
some really intimate connections with people. And I, I know how sort of life-giving that can be. And when I stop and think about that, I, I really do count that as grace upon grace. There are a couple of people, a couple of instances in particular that, that come to mind. And it's funny that even having experienced that, the muscle memory remains. Um, I, I still find myself being not as open as I wish I were to, to forming more of those kinds of relationships with people. I'm curious, has that been your experience as well? Yeah, I think the only thing that I would say that's maybe not similar, you said all that's not shitty about myself is is in those relationships. And I think the relationships that I've found are with people who are willing to laugh at my shitty. <laughs> you know, yeah. I can think of people who have journeyed with me when I was coming out in the church and that was really challenging when my spouse had serious mental illness and had to try to get through that time or when I was in a call that was no longer a good fit and people who journeyed with me in those times and were willing to to stay. That's not an automatic assumption that people stay and were willing to tell me to shut up when I was leaning into that negative voice in my head. So yeah, I think people have offered me abundant grace that has helped me realize that I desperately cannot survive without other humans. I think the other thing that came up for me was like for reasons that I think are generational and not tied to my actual life, which shows how these things travel from generation to generation is this abandonment thing. Like I have had friendships that have ended, that have been broken for whatever reason. As I have been able to rely on other people or rely on the friendships of those people who are still around, I've been willing and able to kind of honor those broken relationships for what they were and, and the grace and the joy that they were at the time and not use them as an opportunity to berate myself about my inability to be in relationship with people, but rather to say, you know what, these are people who I adore, who I love, who if they called tomorrow, I would drop everything and go help them. But but I don't need to hold on to that because it was what it was then. Somehow when you were talking, that felt connected. In the conversation that you and I had a few weeks ago, you reminded me that if you're not being vulnerable, there's no soil to till. Like the, the, the conditions are not ripe for an authentic relationship to emerge. And I think my sort of approaching so many interactions, so many issues from an analytical perspective means that I'm really not open to just meeting the, the person that I'm talking to as a person, thinking about theory, I'm thinking about, you know, whatever it may be. And that really is kind of one of the, the coping mechanisms that I feel like I turn to often. I used to be really good at being in my head, but even in staying in my head, I couldn't engage in the conversations in the ways that you were engaging in the conversations. That brought up like my own inadequacies. I'm not well-read enough. I don't have time to read all these things. I'm trying to raise a 13 year old by myself, like how in the world am I going to do that? Our own inadequacies were, were butting up against each other. And I, I think it is when my world crumbled about a decade ago that, and, and I was able to deepen relationships with others that I realized I was never going to get it right. I am never going to be perfect when I say something. And it actually has opened up more worlds and more depth in my relationships with people when I can screw up. And I think ultimately that's what that's what we haven't had in this pandemic is opportunities to screw mm, up and, and yeah. mess it up. And I, that's a like mind-blowing, I've never thought about it that way, but like how important it is to have an opportunity to fuck something up, <laughs> you know? I mean, and to have the facade removed, 
right? That's sort of a, a theme that's running through this conversation is the, the different masks that we wear and how they morph and change over time and, and why they're there and how we're aware of them at times and not aware of them at other times. And it's sort of paradoxical that, yeah, this, this opportunity to, to screw something up, to have a really hard, uncomfortable, unfiltered interaction with someone might actually be exactly the way that real relationship emerges. I think the place where I learned that was when I was at this church that I was serving and I had been there for about eight years at that point and I had built a really strong program. I had good relationships with people and things were solid and my spouse at the time had very serious mental illness and no one knew about it. I was trying to keep it all together, right? You're supposed to have it all together. You're supposed to not need other people. You're not supposed to rely on members of your congregation. All the pastoral care professors teach us these things. Boundaries are good, but there's a, <laughs> there's a limit. And so what I found was that people with whom I had just the most amazing relationships were so mad at me. Some of them were trying to get me fired, like people who were going to my supervisor. I think it was the moment that someone I just had the utmost respect for said, your child has another parent. And I realized she had no idea what my life looked like at that moment. And then my spouse at the time had to be hospitalized. And at that point, everybody found out. And it was, it was in the breaking open of the facade that I was able to to see that the world didn't end, to to let people pick my child up from preschool, that I was able to take a break from preaching because I couldn't do it anymore. And that in that, um, the first word that came to my mind was holy. In that holy and horrible space was when people started coming to me and telling me that their parents had killed themselves or their cousins or their brothers, or they talked about mental illness in a way that had never been talked about in that congregation or even in the church in general. And the fact that they saw me wrestling with my fate, not that I leaned on them to take care of me because that wasn't the case, but I was able to be honest about what was going on. I had people come to, they would sit on my couch and they would say, finally, we know we can come to you and tell you that we don't know. And so it was in their grace, in my complete and utter brokenness that made me realize I didn't have to keep my shit together. I'm really good at forgetting that. But when muscle memory comes around, when that's all I've got left, but when I'm at my best, when I am able to breathe, that's when I understood what grace meant. And so now in my best moments, my joke is I am really good at being human. And so... I will always be here to show you that that you can be human and still be employed. <laughs> still, that's that's my job in life. There's a, a a Wendell Berry poem that I'm really fond of, and the the last line in the poem is "Practice resurrection." And I love this idea that that resurrection, that new life, would be something that we would sort of engage in over and over and over again. And then we would participate in that fully, that we would try to, to perfect it, that we would do it to the very best of our, ability, our abilities, and that it would also be sort of perfected or brought to completion by something beyond us, right? That we are practicing something that ultimately God would make possible or would bring to completion. And I kind of hear that in what you're saying, right? This continual engagement and, and really striving. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. This kind of continual striving towards something. And then maybe the road would get easier, right? That maybe, maybe this is what sanctification is. I don't, I, I don't know. It's certainly not the way that it was talked about in seminary. <laughs> 
I mean, but maybe that's what sanctification is, right? This sort of a continual engagement day in and day out, hoping that one day it might get easier, that we might get our muscles to remember a different way of being in the world, you know? For me, what I've come to is we were created to be in relationship with God and with one another, period. But the word that brought me to that was when you said striving. I used to be real good at striving to get the best grades or be, you know, at least be acknowledged by the teachers because no one else was going to, you know, like that. So striving brings up something in me that's different. It, it's that a competition that's not, not like, not friendly competition. And so if I'm thinking about my only purpose, my purpose isn't to be perfect. My purpose isn't to be the best. My purpose is to be human. And, um, and this, these are things I have to tell myself. <laughs> but, but if my only purpose is to be in relationship with God and with one another, then, then I don't have to strive. I just have to show up. And sometimes that's icky and sometimes it's stressful. Sometimes it's joyous. Sometimes miracles happen, but that's what I want. Like if I were going to train my muscles, that's that's what I yearn for. So instead of a striving, I would say a yearning. I yearn to figure out how it is that I nurture my relationship with God. And then I yearn to get outside of all the feelings of inadequacy and stress and desire to hide under a rock and just be present with humans. And the reality is if I'm going to open myself up to that, I can't figure out how to present myself in a certain way because all I've done is taken all my energy to say, okay, I'm going to show up. Let's take a break. Is the house that you grew up in still in your family? That's a really interesting question. It, no, it is not. I lived in that house my entire childhood. My mom started dating someone when I was in middle school and he lived about two hours away from where uh, I grew up. And so they dated long distance for a number of years. I really vividly remember this moment. It was the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. And my mother and I were sitting at our kitchen table and just randomly she said like, how would you feel about moving to, to Greenville, which is where my now stepfather lives. And I, as like a typical, like snot-nosed, self-absorbed high school sophomore was like, yeah, yeah, mom, I don't know. Like, I kind of like it here and my friends are here and, you know, this kind of feels nice to me. And she said, okay, that's what I thought. And I don't know why, but I, I vividly remember that conversation and there, and there really wasn't much else that happened in that conversation, but I, it really stuck with me. So my mom and the person who's now my stepdad decided to get married, but they lived apart from one another huh. for uh, the first about two, two and a half years of their marriage. And their reason was really for me to finish high mm. school. Mm -hmm. I look back on that and realize what a, tremendous sacrifice that was on my mother's part. What I mean by that is she delayed a really significant part of her life for me to have the comfort of not changing high schools halfway through. I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't realize what a, a an enormous sacrifice that was. I just didn't really think about it. And so the, the weekend that I packed up to, to move to college, my mom sold our house. And so I was, I was packing up my childhood bedroom and, you know, labeling like this is going to college and this is going, 
you know, to mom's new house with Harry. And so the, the weekend that I moved out is the weekend that my mom moved out. It was really strange coming back. It was uh, Thanksgiving break, my freshman year of college. It was the first time I had, you know, left campus to, to come home since going away to school. And I had to call my mom and like get directions on like, you know, where to, where to go oh, wow. home. Yeah. And that was a really weird and kind of surreal moment for me, um, realizing that home was uh, someplace really yeah. different. But, but what I remember most about that experience was, was coming to the house that, that my mom and Harry were, were now sharing with one another and seeing this kind of joy from my mother. My mom is always a really happy and a really joyful person, but she struggled a lot and she fought a lot as a, as a single parent trying to raise my sister and me. And you, there's a lot there. Um, that, that she worked tremendously hard and loved us so well. And so to come home for Thanksgiving that year and to see her in her new home and with this kind of peace and she was with the person that she loved. And that was kind of the first time that I realized what, a, what an enormous gift she had given me for those two and a half years, you know? And I, I like I said, I, I really did not know that like at all when I was in high school. It never really occurred to me what my sort of blase response of, I don't really feel like moving meant. I had no idea. It's weird. I don't really know like where home is now. I mean, I, I've, I've never really lived with <laughs> my mom and stepdad. Um, when I left for college, it was like, all right, that's a sort of a clean break. And for a long time, I felt like I didn't know exactly where home was. And I would say now, you know, home is where Sarah and I live. We've kind of made our, our own home for ourselves. But for a number of years, it really kind of felt disorienting to me because I had been so rooted in one place for so long. One thing I noticed when you were just talking is at first you talked about the sacrifice that your mom made and and then when you talked about coming home and seeing the joy that they were experiencing, you said what a gift it was that she had given to you. Yeah. And those are very different pictures of the same situation. I grew up Southern Baptist. I, I you know, that the comment we were having a minute ago about striving, right? That's that's connected to it. Mm-hmm. That's sacrifice. We've, we've talked about that word. I think a lot of that is kind of still really like baked into me uh, um, at a really deep level. And then I hear you talk and I think, no, you're right. <laughs> it's not about striving. It's about showing up. It's about being a person. <laughs> and that makes me really grateful to you. That may be baked into you, but you were also the one who said gift. It would seem that there's part of that baked into you too, right? There's a part of you that knows that gift or that grace it just may not be as loud a voice right now. Yeah, yeah. Where do you consider home to be? Or is that even a concept that resonates with you? I don't know. Um, I always laugh when somebody asks me that question <laughs> and I always say, that is a very good question. And, and depending on where I am, I just list off all the places I've lived over time. Sometimes I talk about the church and that was home until they were not fond of me. Um, we have this house in Wisconsin that my grandparents lived in. And I remember Jordan, when she was about two or three, we go there every year and 
I was making scavenger hunts for her. So I would draw pictures of a stick. Like you need to find two sticks and one rock and three daisies and four leaves. And when we were doing one of those scavenger hunts is when I realized that that place that I had come to almost every year of my life really was home. It's not home in the same sense that maybe your house in South Carolina is, but there are stories. I remember spending time with cousins. I remember spending a summer there with my grandparents. I remember where my grandfather sat when he fished and how he filleted the fish in his work area. So I remember all of those things. There's a part of North Carolina that feels like home because that's where I think that I learned how to kind of navigate this world of being an adult and being human. When I was in North Carolina, some friends and I wrote a book about our calls and my chapter was called Searching for Home. So that is the narrative of my life is searching for home. And over those years and therapy and spiritual direction and all of this. I finally, in my best moments, realized that home is just right here. Whatever that is, it's right here. And so it is the place where I'm in relationship with God and where I'm in relationship with other people. And it doesn't look like the same home that other people have, but it is the place where I feel most myself. And I think that's what people feel when they're at home. And so so that was a really long answer for something that doesn't have the answer you're supposed to have when, when you answer that, but, but it is the whole essence of who I am. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, that's a wrap on today's episode. Malcolm, it's been great having a conversation with you. Brandon, throwing it back to you. Y'all so precious. Oh my gosh, you don't even need me. Friends, we'll be back next Tuesday at our normal time. We'll continue our Advent series with a discussion about love. Mm, That's going to be a good one. If you're liking what you hear, go ahead and click that subscribe button. If you happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and give us five stars and leave us a little review. We would really appreciate it. And for all of you who've been sending us emails with requests and suggestions for conversation topics, know that they are on the way. We really appreciate it. Coming up soon will be a discussion about climate change, I hear. Mm. So keep emailing us if you have ideas. It's what's up at the theolab.com. We'll see you next Tuesday. Peace. Thanks, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs>